welcome to the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast. I am very excited today to have another world expert in human performance on the show, Dr. Andy Galpin a professor at the Center for Sport Performance at California State University Fullerton and co-host of the number one fitness podcast on iTunes, the hugely popular Barbell Shrug podcast is on the show today. In this episode, Andy is going to kick things off by talking about technology. The theme of his new book, Unplugged, Evolve from Technology to Upgrade Your Fitness, Performance, and Consciousness, and some of the potential pitfalls of overuse or over-reliance on technology. He also dives into biomarkers of longevity, things you may not typically associate with healthy aging like grip strength, as well as insights about how muscle fiber types can change, the difference between adaptation and optimization, and some keen insights about getting back to nature and the value of feeling small every once in a while. Great insights here from Andy, one of the best sport and exercise scientists out there today, so please enjoy the show. Really important take-home messages here today from Andy, so please share with friends. And as always, you can check out my layups and performance tips at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm joined today by Dr. Andy Galpin, PhD, a professor at the Center for Sport Performance at California State University, Fullerton, and the director of the Biochemistry and Molecular Exercise Physiology Lab. He teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in exercise physiology, strength and conditioning, exercise program design, and sports nutrition, among others. His research utilizes the muscle biopsy procedure to analyze muscle at the single cell level in response to high-intensity power force exercises. Essentially, his research uses highly sophisticated measurements and laboratory techniques to answer practical questions like, how does muscle adapt at the cellular level to interval training versus strength training? What cellular aspects of muscle allow some athletes, like elite crossfitters or mixed martial artists, to be simultaneously strong and highly conditioned? He has over 100 scientific articles and international presentations and has helped his numerous athletes and Olympic, elite-level NFL, weightlifting, MLB, NBA, and UFC athletes. Andy, thanks so much for taking the time today. Dang, man, that's like the most extensive bio I've ever been given. (laughs) Awesome. Well, listen... Can we kick things off here by telling folks a little bit about how you got started into the research side of things? What really sparked that passion for you? Well, you know, uh, it wasn't a lifelong dream. I still have a hard time thinking that I'm actually a scientist. As much as that bio would sound otherwise, I don't really identify with that. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a performance guy or a coach that happens to be a scientist rather than the opposite. And I think the reason I got started this is because I was going through my graduate uh, career and actually even prior to that and I was working directly with athletes and I, I just sort of realized that no one's no one's taking this approach to answer these types of training questions uh, and, and doing it at the cellular level and so there were people that were doing some real you know sport performance research and there were people that were doing muscle physiology research that had nothing to do with sport and I just sort of saw a hole and I saw uh, there was a niche there that could be filled if somebody said, well, let's take some of these, these sophisticated laboratory techniques like you, like you mentioned earlier, but let's apply them to real training questions with, with real athletes, and I think we can answer a lot there. So I just sort of saw a niche um, you know, a few decades ago and, and went after it. 
That's awesome. And definitely um, what I appreciate about so much of your work is the ability to really talk about nuance. And of course, in your fantastic new book, Unplugged, Evolve from Technology to Upgrade Your Fitness, Performance, and Consciousness, um, which you co-authored with Brian McKenzie and Phil White. Uh, you guys explore, you know, the potential pitfalls of becoming too dependent on technology. You know, so where is that line between wearables providing insight and knowledge for whether it's recreational or elite athletes, and where is that potential for information overload and confusion? So I, I think the potential is dependent upon the person and the application. In fact, most people think when they hear the title and they hear us talk about it that it's an anti-technology book, and it's really not. It's and in fact, we're not even blaming technology. Uh, I'm blaming you, <laughs> not, not you personally, Mark, but like I'm blaming you as a person. It's your fault for letting these things guide you. It's, it's your fault for being tricked by marketing and, and persuasion tactics. And you're being tricked into thinking that these technologies have it all figured out and don't worry about it, don't think we are the answer, we're the solution. But then you got to buy the next version. Oh, well now this, this is the actual solution. Well, no, okay, no, 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 this is the real solution. And it's this continual cycle of, of consumerism as well as not actually reaching your goal because they're not really trying to get you to your goal. And that's because they have fundamental limitations. And so really the book came about is, again, not a way to say, like, let's not use wearables or get away from your HRV or anything like that, but more of a wake-up call and saying, hey, let's realize that these things can be very, very helpful. And here are situations and circumstances, blah, 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 blah. But let's also realize their limitations. They're not incredibly accurate. Sometimes they're very inaccurate. They don't understand context. They don't have a. They have a ton of limitations. They can actually be demotivating for a lot of people, and the science is bearing that out. And so, what we just wanted to say is, well, let's make sure we're having the consciousness and awareness when we integrate technology into our fitness training or performance that we're doing it diligently and with purpose, and not just for the sake of data collection because. The, the there's a direct inverse relationship between amount of data collected and effectiveness. So we have to make sure that we're we're doing that judiciously so that we can make sure we're optimizing uh, how we use those technologies and that that information. Yeah, it's very well said. And there's some you know some staggering stats in your book as well. You know, one of them is just you know by the year 2020, I think the global market for you know fitness focused apps and devices is expected to grow to around 30 billion or so. Um, so, you know, where is that, or why is that over-dependence on fitness technology a potential problem? So, the, I mean, the number one problem is it depends on your your perspective. So whether we're talking about an NFL strength conditioning coach or, um, you know, a, a stay-at-home mom or uh, uh, an executive or CEO who's just trying to stay fit. So depending on who you are, the, the technology could have a different problem. And, and so we can maybe just dive into a few of those examples and I'll just kind of make them up as I go just to show you how versatile the argument is. But for the average everyday person, uh, you know, for an example, something as simple like a, 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 an app or a watch that tracks how many steps you take. Well, if you look at the data, like 90 plus percentage of people actually quit and give up on those things after a few months. And so number one, statistics tell us it's not working. It's not actually changing behavior. So is it really worth your $300, $400, $500, $600? And then what it also shows you is that people will buy multiple of them. And so it's crazy to say, like, you're continually spending hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on something that you almost know won't work because people have a sensationalized, or sensationalized with innovation, but it's not necessarily sustainable unless you can use that innovation to break through those early motivation plateaus, which is totally possible. 
but that's only the beginning. You have to then take that and match that with conscious awareness and physicality. And so if we take the Fitbit example, so say you, or Fitbit or anybody, I don't care about Fitbit, any wearable watch, I watch, who cares? And say you buy one of these watches and it tells you, hey, you should be walking 10,000 steps a day. Well, great. For a lot of people, that can be a great motivator and for a, it can be a great place to start. But if you look at the data, uh, eventually, after a few months, people are going to quit. And why is that? Because they're actually going to be demotivating at the end of it or they're going to be hitting their 10,000 steps and nothing's going to happen to them physically. Gotcha. And so they're going to be like, well, what the hell's the point of this? So what we need to do is, as we're making those 10,000 steps, we need to be also saying, well, did you notice how you slept better, that you're more physically active? Did you notice how you got into less arguments with your kids? Did you notice how you were more productive at work? Did you notice how this felt better? Oh my gosh, you are starting to notice these things. And so you can now move the carrot from just hitting the score on an app, because people don't really care about that. Gamification works in the very, very short term, but it doesn't work for long term. So unless you can take that additional step, which is to say, let's match this with something you really care about, like productivity or sleep or happiness or whatever metrics that you're concerned about, then that's actually now a sustainable practice. And so the app can be used as calibration or early motivation, but in and of itself, it's almost always going to fail. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the other aspects that you guys touched on as well is this idea of sort of sacrificing interactions with, with other people, trainees, uh, community, etc., in favor of just diving into your, your wearable or your app. Can you touch on that a yeah. little bit? Yeah, and that, that, has, that has a lot of consequences. I mean, we're continually becoming a society that is more and more and more connected, but yet those connections are at a, a higher and higher level. And I mean, that, like they're more surface level. So the anecdote that people are saying, and you've all probably heard this, but this is a very good example, is you know you, now you have 5,000 friends on Instagram, but you don't have two real friends. Exactly. And, and, <laughs> you know, like, and th this is a real problem. If we look back at you know, anthropology and how we evolved as a species, like, we're, we're meant to have real serious deep connections from person to person. And this bears out a lot of problems that are really honestly outside of my scope and my practice. But, but other people have outlined these things, and you can check out their resources. But this is a real problem, and, and fitness and exercise is one of the few remaining places that we find social interaction. And if we lose that, now we've just lost another thing um, that, that's probably not going to help us in the long run. Absolutely. I mean, you touched on you know, the dependence on apps here, and a lot of people, of course, wear apps to help them lose weight. And you know, in the book, you guys mentioned how actually old-school diet plans came out more favorable than the uh, than the high-tech wearables. Can you can you explain? Yeah, I mean, look, if you look at the weight loss specifically, the data is very clear. All things stacked up together, adherence, which is how likely are you to actually do the program and how long do you follow it and how accurate, how well do you stick to the program. Uh, that is actually the number one driver, number one predictor of actual fat loss. It, it, the, the diet, the details, carbs, fat, like those things actually matter far, far, far less. I'm not saying they're irrelevant, but they matter far less relative to adherence. And so when we start to try to implement things across 350 million people or globally to six, seven, eight billion people, numbers like it or factors like adherence start to really, really, really matter. And, and that's imp it's important that you understand what I mean that because, you know, I'm a scientist, uh, I'm not an epidemiologist. But I also still work with athletes on a one-to-one -one scale. And so I think we can and parse these 
these this dichotomy out a little bit and saying things like, well, okay, yes, um, adherence is the number one thing we should focus on for the community. But that doesn't mean when you're working with one individual person that you can't take whatever nutritional approach you want, and whether you're into any certain type of nutrition program, for example, or weight loss strategy, that's totally fine. But when we start to try to implement that across massive numbers of people, then we have to dial back the nuance because it's not going to be effective. People will not follow extremely complicated plans at these global number levels. So that's, that's all we're really saying here is let's put people in a position to actually succeed. Now, if you're an actual coach who works with people one-on-one, -on -one, well, now, yes, of course, go ahead and use your program, get nuance, get details, go there. That is important. But that doesn't really help the masses. And in fact, it what it, what it clearly shows is it's actually counterproductive and harmful, and it makes them um, become adversely reactive to even anything in this field, and they just don't want to pay attention to any of it. And that's the exact opposite of what we're looking for. So we have to understand that getting people to follow through with basic principles is more important than uh, than minutia for a lot of time. Absolutely. It's something we definitely see in just the general nutrition recommendations, you know, since the 1970s of, you know, the more, mm. the more recommendations we're giving when there was a mild increase in things like diabetes and heart disease. Now over the last 40, 50 years, we've seen an explosion in these things. And yet we've given more and more advice than, than possible. Yeah. So that idea of nuance of just having a real clear message. And, you know, interestingly, some of the, the metrics that you discuss in your book around sort of healthy aging and longevity are some that, you know, a lot of clinicians and docs might not initially think about. So things like grip strength, VO2 max, um, mm -hmm. leg strength. Can you talk about some of those those metrics? Sure. So, you know, I've been fortunate and I'm actually, before I got on the conversation here and as soon as we're finished, I'm going to go back to writing a, a grant. But um, I'm collaborating with one of the guys who pioneered most of this work named Jonathan Myers. And you'll see his name over everything. And he's one of the first guys that made us realize, hey, VO2 max is actually a stronger predictor of mortality than blood pressure, cholesterol, any of those common quote-unquote health metrics. And you know, if you're not familiar with VO2 max, that's basically you know how much oxygen can you bring in and utilize. And then those are clear. And now other people, Steve Blair and tons of other scientists, and this this actual field is exploded when people. It's funny, man, because it's like what happened was people just started to question assumptions. And, and people, you know, we've been told for decades what health really means. And then Steve Blair and, and John Myers came along and said, like, well, really? Are we really sure? Well, actually, we've never even compared it to something like performance-based. What would happen if we questioned this assumption? And it turns out, not only did those things turn out to be significant, leg strength, grip strength, total amount of lean muscle mass, these things are oftentimes far more significant predictors of mortality than blood pressure, cholesterol, et cetera, et cetera. And like it's just it's just a basic questioning of assumption and thinking like well why do we care about blood pressure or cholesterol? Because uh, those are indicators of heart health. Well, if we're interested in that, why don't we just measure the heart's maximal capacity? That seems to me the more direct functional measure, and of course it is. Let's measure how you actually perform and function as a human. And this has been bared out now over just countless studies, and we're talking hundreds at this point. And so it's extremely clear we're still having a hard time getting it into the eyeballs of a lot of physicians, but. But these really are the metrics of health, and if we want to make changes to people, like we can continue to waste our time at the global level measuring these things that are maybe important for certain people with pathological disorders, but the average ever, average person that's not quote-unquote diseased, if we just figured out are you strong, are you fit, that's going to solve a huge portion of our medical problems. And in fact, even going back to the, the nutritional guidelines, 
I mean, if you look around and see any of my stuff or um, any of the podcasts I've ever done, you can see my position on, on a whole range of different diets. But like, I would still say to you right now, if half of America actually followed the RDA recommendations for nutrition, uh, that alone would end the vast majority of our health crises. And I don't even think those recommendations are particularly great. But most people are so far off the end of the reservation with those things. Like, you know, like we don't write, the FDA doesn't write nutritional recommendations for 25-year-old CrossFitters. Like, sure. So, yeah, those, those recommendations are probably not super important for you. But the vast majority of people, man, like they are so bad. If they could just regress back to the RDA recommendations, it would be such an improvement in their health and quality of life. It would be just staggering. And if we could get most people back to that, then we could have the next conversation, which is to say, okay, let's actually take a step forward again and improve these recommendations. But we can't even get people to hit the recommendations, which we'd all agree are, are not particularly great in the first place. So that's the problem that we're dealing with in terms of global scale is it's very, very hard to convince people to follow a 7 or 12 or 18 step diet when they won't even follow the basics of eat fruits and ve fruits and vegetables, eat real food. So it's just really tough. Absolutely. And it's definitely something that, um, you know, as primary care clinicians, like, you know, being a good coach is such a key part of influencing, as you mentioned, like behavior change. And I always find it fascinating because as you mentioned, yeah, the, if we just stuck to those guidelines, we'd see some effective change, but it's almost in the delivery of the guidelines when, when patients go in, that makes it so difficult for them to adhere to, or we get the, some, you know, a lot of, uh, debating amongst experts on, on the, the most appropriate way to, to implement some of these things. And then sort of people just end up throwing their hands up in the air and, um, choosing to, to go their own road, so to speak. But yeah, well, that's why, like, that's why I push back so much on any of these people who defend their territories so hard. So anyone that has a certain diet or training program or philosophy or clinical practice, and if when they walk around talking about how like that's the end all be all, or you know this is the way to do it, I push back on that because like we have to give people flexibility, both the individual people and the practitioners. You have to be able to, like, I have to be able to walk in and say, hey, look, um, I hate ketogenic diets. All right. Um, they're, they're not working, and here's the evidence, blah, 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 blah. But I have to allow you the space, and I'm totally making this up, by the way, but uh, you to walk in and go, you know what, that might be all true, but I've seen a 1,000 patients in the last three years. I've put 700 on ketogenic diet, and 500 have had a major improvements. Like, I have to acknowledge that and give you the space to go, oh, wow, really awesome, great, well, fantastic. Hey, this is good. This is a win. What can I learn from you? Uh, because there are a thousand ways we can get people healthier and better and at their goals. And, and it doesn't help us to take options away unless those options truly are harmful or they're snake oil um, or, or, they're, or they're, you know, people being robbed out of money. But if these things are reasonably efficacious, we have to give people the opportunity to succeed with their own clientele, with their own base, and with the, their own approach. Because there's, it, it's arrogant for us to think there's only one way to go about it. 100%. It's amazing how, in terms of things like compliance uh, and working with our sports site, Dave Cox at Canada Basketball, just giving people a choice and an option, um, mm -hmm. the improvements in, in compliance when they feel like they're sort of part of that um, decision-making process. Now, if we circle back to the VO2 max, is there sort of a threshold in terms of, you know, at what point is increasing that VO2 max, do you start to, you know, not gain any extra benefits in terms of longevity or leg strength for that matter? Yeah, those, that's a very fair point. Um, the answer is I don't know. Um, we would have to parse that out pretty hard. But basically, the higher you can get to, uh, the further away you are from catastrophe. And so we, we did a project years ago uh, where I went to Stockholm, Sweden, and I, I did a bunch of testing on some 80- and 90-year-old cross-country skiers. 
And these were people that were world champions, Olympic champions in the 1940s and 50s, and they, they've continued to race. So they're on year 50 or 60 of competitive racing. And we compared them to some age-matched uh, 80 and 90-year-old living-at-home folks in, in central Indiana. And, you know, like if you're 80 and 90 and you're living by yourself in a home, you're already doing pretty good. So, you know, 100%. you have to question the control aspect of that. But nonetheless, one of the things that we looked at was um, the the Indiana folks, so, so non-exercisers, had VO2 maxes around like 20 milliliters per kilogram per minute. And anytime you fall below the line of, say, 15, that's what we'll typically call the line of independence. So somebody that has a VO2 max of 14 probably doesn't live independently. They probably have to have assisted living. So the Indiana folks were at home living, but they were just above that threshold. So if any little thing happened, they got sick, they got hurt, any little thing, they were going to fall below the line of independence and probably have to move into assisted living. But the skiers had almost uh, a VO2 max almost closer to 40. And so if they got sick, the same injury, they and they failed at 10 or, 20, or 10 or 15 milliliters per kilogram, they still were going to be above that line of independence. So the higher you can push that when you're younger, the more likely you are to, to be at a starting place. But of course, as you mentioned, that has massive diminishing returns um specifically with leg strength you know if you go from squatting 500 pounds to 700 pounds i don't think that'll make you live a day longer for that, sure that, that, it's probably <laughs> not going to get there same thing with vo2 max i mean if you're if you're between the ages of say 25 and 40 and your vo2 max is above 55 you're probably pretty good like you're in a real good spot if it's below 40 well then that that's going to eventually affect your health and probably sooner rather than later so I can give some rough numbers there, but I can't directly answer your question. For sure. So, so a lot of those people who are on the couch, overweight, out of shape, I mean, just being able to squat their own body weight or uh, being able to mm -hmm. get that VO2 max up is going to be a nice way to increase longevity, much more so than a lot of the surrogates that a lot of docs might be testing, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, geez, if, if you're like, hey, I really hate exercising, I don't have time, and if you could get two workouts in a week and you did one thing that took you to a max heart rate, intervals, or whatever you want to do, Another thing that improved your leg strength a little bit, and if those workouts were 20 minutes, like that would have a massive, massive bang for your buck. And you talked about lean muscle fiber types uh, as people mm -hmm. age, and that there's a sort of a myth that it doesn't change as you age. Is that, uh, is that true, untrue? Yeah, I mean, I don't know why people get this idea. We have, again, hundreds of papers showing it. Um, but yeah, your fiber type is specifically uh, a major concern as you age, and, and what happens is for some reason, your fast twitch muscle fibers are preferentially targeted with aging. And so those, those go away, they shrink, they die, and they transition into becoming slow fiber types. And, that, and that's, a, that's a real problem for a lot of people because it's very hard to make the move back in the other direction when you've had certain sedentary activity for 40 years. It's going to take more than a, you know, five or six weeks to move them back in the other, other direction. Um, they will, of course, if they can move from fast to slow or slow to fast, but it becomes very, very difficult, especially if the neuron that's innervating the fiber dies or becomes de-innervated for some reason, and you're, you're not going to get that back. So that's a real problem. And of course, this is one of the reasons why things like uh, that didn't land in the book, but foot speed and power and, and foot velocity are other important predictors of morbidity and mortality because... Those are the things that you use to catch yourself from a fall. Absolutely. So you, you know, th those things are super important factors. And if you lose a, a significant portion of your fast twitch muscle fibers, well, that's what they were there to do. 
So now you're really compromising your health. Definitely, big time. And you know, I recently heard you on the Joe Rogan Experience, and you were talking about uh, some recent research that you did in, in monozygous twins. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what are the impacts there of genetics on performance and muscle fiber type? So, I mean, of course, genetics are important, but the way I like to to describe this is genetics determine how many bullets you get to put in your gun, right? And how big the gun is and, and how big the bullets are. But your lifestyle determines if they get fired or not. So if I had an, uh, an Uzi with a, a 75 round clip in it, but I never pulled the trigger, that's not a very dangerous weapon. Uh, in fact, a, a revolver with two shots in it that gets pulled once is more dangerous than the other one. And I don't mean to be insensitive with my gun analogies at the current moment, but uh, I think it's just very easy for people to understand. So for genetics sure, are sure. important, but I think the one thing I can say is that lifestyle, like as studies continually, continually come out, lifestyle is becoming more and more prevalent in terms of predicting what's actually going to happen to you. We, we used to think it was all genetic, and then it was like, okay, genetics are 90% of it. And now it's probably somewhere in the middle of like 50-50. And so that's a big chunk of your health, positive or negative, are a result of your environment. And, and depending on the marker, it may be 90% environment, 10% genetic, uh, or higher. So the more and more research we do, the more and more we realize the lifestyle is contributing to your health and performance. And, and genetics is a part of it, of course, but um, it's not something, you have more control than you think, I'll put it that way. Yeah, it's incredible how environment is such a huge impact on how all these things are expressed. And um, of course, I really enjoyed your, you know, your new uh, the Body of Knowledge podcast and how you're mm. diving into, you know, how humans can change body, minds, and you know some of the insights you had on again muscle fiber types in terms of being able to change over the course of a year. Can you can you share some of the insights there in terms of how cell type determines function and what impacts adaptability? Yeah, sure. So we have. Um um, you know, most people are aware that you have quote-unquote fast-twitch and slow-twitch fibers. But it's actually quite more extensive than that. You have probably five to six or maybe even more different fiber types. And they exist on a spectrum from fast all the way to slow. And for decades, people have apparently thought there's some confusion about whether or not the fiber types can change with things like exercise. And while, while I get it, in fact, I, I have a like a two and a half hour video on my website that you can watch if you really want to get into the details. It's, it's actually extremely clear why this confusion exists. But I, I don't understand why people in the field continue to report it. Well, I, let me back up. I know why they continue to report it because they don't actually spend the time to go read. But when you do, it is extremely clear. Uh, in fact, we've got dozens now of studies and basically every single study the last 30 years that's looked at this question has shown, yes, indeed, they change. In fact, none of them not a single study with the proper techniques in the last 30 years have shown fibers don't change. So, like, I, 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 I'm just this, this question needs to be over with, and people need to start realizing, or, you know, stop communicating or stop talking about this if you don't actually do it. Um, leave this up to the people who are the true experts, uh, not not just the authorities. But they change is the point, and they change with exercise training, and they're very very sensitive. So, the, the type of exercise you do determines how the fiber types will change. Um, even recent papers came out in the last couple of years showing, uh, with a guy, a guy I'm collaborating with at Cal Poly Pomona, that simple things like your diet can change your fiber type. So they did a really nice study looking at a high sugar, high fat diet and showed significant changes in fiber type and how that actually could be blocked when you administer in resveratrol. 
So, like, everything matters. Your training matters. Your macronutrient matters. Your micronutrient, all this stuff matters. Um, carbon dioxide concentrations also have been recently showed to, to alter fiber type. So, like, physiology, there's no free passes in physiology. Everything matters. Absolutely. And, yeah, as you mentioned, it's so interesting to see with people taking, you know, bigger boluses of... Uh antioxidant supplements, et cetera, things like resveratrol <laughs> post-training and, and, and having that, that sort of real black and white uh, view of inflammation, good, bad, and then, of course, uh, having a you know big impact on that adaptive response after training. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of, of the difference between kind of optimizing training and the adaptation of to training? Yeah, and then that's one thing. I've, I think I put this in the book, but one thing I've been harping on for a while is I like to think about... Um, either on the left-hand side, you're adapting, or on the right-hand side, you're optimizing. And it's very, very difficult to do these two at the same exact time. And so what I mean, inflammation is a very good example of that. Uh, you know, People think of inflammation as bad, and they think of other things as good or bad. But inflammation, you got, folks, you got to realize, that is the direct signal for adaptation. Like If you don't have inflammation, you don't adapt. There is no change without stress. Like th this is key to it. Of course, the problem is if you are chronically inflamed or chronically underslept or chronically underhydrated, these have problems. But that doesn't mean we don't want short boluses or short bouts of extreme dehydration or extreme cold or extreme fatigue or whatever it's going to be, because that actually is what causes its adaptation. So, I mean, classic example, if you were to do a bunch of hypertrophy training and trying to grow muscle mass and then you took a bunch of antioxidants and anti-inflammatories you would quite literally block the signal for growth and so you would actually block the amount of hypertrophy you get and well if you're in a training phase and you're trying to specifically add muscle mass and then you wonder why you can't add muscle you're blocking the signal and you haven't teased out you should be spending time adapting right now but you're trying to optimize your recovery and you're trying to optimize whatever other thing you're trying to optimize, well, then you're not going to be adapting. And so I, I think one one of the things we have to be particularly careful of, especially those that are into the biohackers or um, the business folks, the entrepreneurs, the people that want to sell you things on the internet, and I don't mean that completely nefariously uh, or pejoratively because you know, a lot of my friends do that, self-included, right? Um, but <laughs> this is, like, we have to be careful of saying, well, if I'm always buying the thing that makes me feel better, perform better, function better, that's actually probably going to block me from getting better. And that's really hard for people to understand. Like if it takes you, you got to wake up in the morning and you have to have the optimal workout routine and then you have to do your perfect meditation and then you have to have your mushroom tea and your butter and your coffee and, and these 28 steps have to go right with your nootropics so that you can have a normal productive day. Well, eventually, all that optimization is going to compromise adaptation, and so you're going to become either reliant upon these things or you're going to block the ability to develop energy or nootropics endogenously, whatever the, the case is. So I'm not saying don't do those things, but I am saying, well, let, let's have periods where we say, look, I'm going to optimize right now, and I'm going to make sure I've got this important deadline or this meet or this competition or whatever it happens to be. I'm going to optimize. But then we've got to match that with the same period of saying, okay, well, now that that's over, I'm going to spend some time adapting. So I'm going to make sure that I can still uh, perform functioning. I'm going to challenge my body a little bit. And when I do that, I have to realize and recognize my performance is going to go down a little bit right now. But it's probably better for me in the long run to get this little bout of adaptation. 
Yeah, so very well said. I mean, so many people looking for a quote-unquote edge with, you know, whether it's the supplement or the nootropic when some of those big rocks, as you mentioned, even just sleep, effective training, allowing that adaptive response, getting the right food in is sort of the, the big rocks that are really going to push that adaptive response. Um, and of course, you know, getting back to your book and this idea of, of getting back to nature, which you really, you know, hit home on. And I'm not sure if it was maybe Laird Hamilton that mentioned talking about the the value of feeling small. I think with maybe respect to the mm -hmm. ocean or nature. Can you can you talk about that notion with the listeners? Yeah, well, you know, like I think it's unfortunately or fortunately, we're living in a time and a period of human existence where life is the easiest it's ever been. And so because of that, we have engineered a lot of diseases of abundance. And that's not to say all diseases are abundant, they're real diseases, but a lot of the things that we have, especially cognitively or mentally, um, feeling of worthlessness or lack of desire or lack of purpose, um, some of that is true disease, but some of that is also the fact that uh, we've sort of displaced how important we are in the universe. And, and I always go back to Carl Sagan and his pale blue dot. And like, you know, Laird, Laird says it his way, which is how you mentioned, but I say it in terms of pale blue dot. Like sometimes it's important for us to realize we're not very important and we need to be a little bit less, less self-centered and we need to think about things like other people. We need to think about the environment. We need to think about animals and we need to think about whatever it is that's out there because there's a lot more going on on this planet and we're not super important. Um, we're not as important as we think anyways. And so we, we can maybe not be so stressed over some things that maybe don't matter so much. And we have to have a little bit more context. And I think we can help ourselves deal with some of these, you know, again, diseases of abundance by reminding ourselves, like, this is not that difficult. I mean, I, I think I use this analogy in the book, but I can't remember of listening to Dan Carlin's um, uh, Hardcore History podcast. And where he tells stories of people uh, of what they had to deal with in Vietnam and World War II and the, you know, the actual physical struggles they went through. And you think back and you're like, man, you know, my grandpa or my dad spent three months in a swamp with one pair of boots and an arm half falling off and literally got shot in the stomach and had that taped up and then didn't have food and had to eat bamboo poop. Like, it's like that's not some alien ten thousand years ago or some ancestor from a different soma species. This is like your Recent dad. Recent history, this. yeah. Like your dad did this, and then you're trying to tell me you can't go sixteen hours without food one day. Like you can't tell me you can't deal with this email that really upsets you, or somebody didn't like your Facebook post. Like, c come on, we need to have a little more resiliency and remember that like we're not that important. These are not huge problems in our life. Um, that we can't overcome these things. And I think that's Laird's way of saying it and mine as well. Yeah, it's amazing how nature can kind of bring that out in people almost intuitively as well, whether you're on a mountain or by an ocean or in a forest where you just sort of, uh, it's, it's, it becomes much easier to appreciate that, that notion, doesn't it, of, of, of feeling smaller or feeling like there's a, obviously a small role in the, in the, bigger, in the bigger picture there. Um, of course, you know, if we come back around to to the focus of the book and kind of this, this middle of the ground, you know, where is the evolution of tech and wearables? Like where, where are we going to find that benefit? And, um, you know, where are those fears, uh, the main fears coming from? Well, you know, the, the main fear is of course that we're, we're not taking advantage of the things that are possible and like, well, what could have happened? How could I have lived longer? Could I have achieved this other goal if I would have used this available technology? So, 
you know, there's the quote-unquote fear of missing out. And, and that's really what it comes down to. And, and that's understandable. I'll deal with that every day. But we just have to make sure that we're not letting that overwhelm us and that our fear of missing out isn't so large that we end up missing actually out on the present experience. 100%. I mean, it's amazing how, uh, you know, we often forget there's sort of, uh, you know, hundreds of, of PhDs and researchers on the other side of the veil, if you so to speak, in terms of the, the tech and the wearables or obviously influencing behavior and making us feel like we're, as you mentioned, sort of missing out or providing that stimulus that makes us want to go back for more in terms of the technology. Yeah, I mean, look, again, so technology's here and it's only coming and it's only getting bigger. You can't just ditch technology, you're going to lose. That's a failing argument and you shouldn't even attempt to that. Uh, we just want to make people aware that as this becomes a bigger and bigger, bigger part of our life, have some prudency, uh, have some consciousness and some awareness and always take it with a grain of salt because I promise you the stuff is not as accurate. It's not as helpful as you even remotely think. And and so no matter what these companies tell you and what other people tell you, we kneel, we do still need to have touch with our own physiology and our own intuition. And we need to always continue to, to dive back because there will be no better artificial intelligence than what's already in your body. And, and I can give you the example of of suffering. And so we have all kinds of problems this is a general argument with the technology people is like, well, yeah, there's limitations to this technology that you mentioned, like context, and they don't understand when and how to apply. They don't understand the person, their situation. But the, the tech people always fire back and say, well, they don't now, but when they build artificial intelligence behind these things, we'll solve all those issues because they will be able to take in huge amounts of context and data with you and figure all this stuff out. And while that's true, they're still going to miss the fundamental major point. And the analogy I'll give you is with suffering. And so, you know, uh, Elon Musk is, is super famous right now and popular because he's trying to take people to Mars. Well, what people have to realize is that's not a rocket or a technology problem. That's a 100% a physiology problem. <laughs> the only reason we're not in Mars is physiology, not technology. And the problem is they can't find a way to put enough physical stress on the astronauts without them dying in that long of a flight. Of a, in that long of a flight. Wow. And it's crazy to think we spent our entire 200,000 or 2 million years or however old we are as a species with a 100% goal of minimizing stress and suffering, right? Like we, we engineered food, we engineered tribe uh, communities, we engineered housing, we engineered electronics and technology all with the point of minimizing suffering. Well, it turns out maybe that was a bad goal because, oops, we fucking did it. <laughs> yeah. And now what happened? Now we're sicker than we've ever been. And so we didn't ask, the problem is the fundamental question of artificial intelligence is always going to be limited by the thing we ask it to do. In this case, if we asked it, all the other problems aside, if we asked it to make sure that it minimizes human suffering, what if that's not the right question? And, and it turns out it's not. If you minimize human suffering, you minimize adaptation and you eventually turn into a blob of crap. And so we either have to make two choices at that point. One. Choice number one is you have to engineer or choose external suffering. That's what we call exercise, right? Like exercise is a pseudo way of inducing a little bit of pain and suffering. And now we've realized for the last 100 years, like, well, actually, our lives have gotten too physically easy. We have to install that suffering back into ourselves. And the recent stuff is showing, well, ah, shit, maybe the same thing needs to happen for hunger and cold and hot 
And these are all, this is why all these fields are exploding right now, because people are realizing, well, what are all the physical stresses that were placed on the body for millions of years that, that allowed it to evolve? And it is designed and evolved to function best in the presence of stress, continual stress, in a bunch of different ways. When we remove that, we completely remove the whole process of the body. Like, it has no way to adapt. It has no way to clean itself up or repair itself when it's not stressed. And so the artificial intelligence is going to always be limited by the, the question or the, the proposition that we give it. And it's never really going to understand that. And so this is the dilemma that we're put into. And as technology continues to expand in our personal and physical and health lives, we always have to understand that none of those things will ever be as good as your intuitive self and understanding what's actually needed for you. Because if you learn to listen to your body, it will generally tell you what needs to happen. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, very well said, and it's incredible. Uh, millions of years of evolution, like you said, has downloaded the the ultimate software in the brain and everything else for these adaptations to take place. So, you know, so many great insights here, and your book is such a phenomenal platform for for folks to take action. I want to respect your time here. So, the so last question for you. I know you're an extremely busy guy. You know, on the personal side of things, now, how do you start your day? Is it are you a coffee guy? How do you fit training into your routine? Mm -hmm. Can you give us some insights there? So I'm, uh, I'm probably like the worst guy to ask that question to <laughs> because it's actually my philosophy is, is I don't like routine like that. Um, I, I generally wake up very early in the morning. I'm a 4 a.m. sort of riser um, somewhere in that ballpark, mostly fairly intuitive. I have an alarm, but it's mostly for backup. Um, but I, I tend to wake up like that early for a lot of reasons, and I actually don't like it. It gives me personal anxiety. And I don't like it um, to have very specific routines. I, I want to have the resiliency to wake up and be like, you know what, you have an important meeting to do, and you're not going to be held hostage by needing coffee. You're not going to be held hostage by doing these things. So there are certain things that I do like. Um, I, I drink coffee, but I usually takes me like the whole day to get through a cup, and half the time I forget to even drink it if I make it. Um, so I, I don't care so much about that. That's great. But usually my day is started off with some sort of, of movement, so I probably take my dogs out to exercise on 99% of the mornings, so we go on long hikes or jogs or walks or something like that. Um, but I, I, I honestly allow myself to do the freedom of, sometimes I wake up, man, like super pumped to do something, and I don't want to be like, well, like I'm not going to go do that because I have this arbitrary routine that I put down on a piece of paper. So sometimes I wake up and like, I immediately flip my laptop up and just start crushing something. And I feel great. And I'm like, man, I've been up and it's 6.30 and I've just knocked out this big thing that I've been not wanting to do for months. And then I feel fantastic. And then some days I diddle around or exercise or eat. So I, I like to let myself, I give myself the space to say like, well, what are you feeling like doing right now? And if I wake up with a creativity burst or an enthusiasm and excited, like I don't want to have to not do that because I set some weird rule for myself. Um, that works for me. That doesn't work for everyone. I don't even recommend that. Not even close for everyone. But I, I, I have the freedom to do that, and I like to be able to go where the day leads me. Absolutely, great advice, and I think it's great to have that adaptability and just yeah, really being intuitive and knowing uh, knowing which way to take the day. So that's uh, sounds like great advice for everyone. And listen, Andy, massive thank you for taking the time uh, today. Where can people pick up the book? Where can people keep up with your groundbreaking work and stay connected with you on social media? So the, the book is available on Barnes & Noble, um, on you know Amazon, all that stuff, wherever you buy books. Uh, Unplugged, Evolve from Technology to Upgrade Your Fitness, Performance, and Consciousness. 
So that's out there. Um, you can check out the, the little podcast that you mentioned called The Body of Knowledge, um, iTunes, you know, Citra, all that stuff, thebodyknowledge.com. Um, and that's just a, it's a little bit different of a podcast, and, and we've only, we do very, very short seasons. And so the first season, I think, had nine episodes, and, and then we take like a four or five month break, and, and we're actually just in the middle of making season two right now. Uh, so you can get caught up on that, and and we we spend a lot of time crafting each story and revising and kind of putting back. So it's a little bit different of a show. Um, Great stuff. When's season out. two coming out? I can't tell you. Okay, no worries. Uh, we're hoping hoping very 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 soon. So hopefully November. But um, like I said, man, we we spend a lot of time on every episode, and if we're not super super stoked about it, we scrap it or we we revise. We probably do thirty or forty hours. And then condense that down to like 30 or 45 minutes. Terrific. So it just depends. It may, it may get pushed back till um, the beginning of next year, but maybe, hopefully, it'll be out soon. Um, and then social media is easy. Just, you know, Andy Galpin, Dr. DR Andy Galpin on Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff is easy to find. And, and of course, my website, um, andygalpin.com, where, where I put a bunch of videos and, and stuff, and everything on that website's free. So all my class lectures, all my stuff, any conference talks I give, I throw it up on that website and just give it away. Awesome, and that's fantastic. And we'll definitely include all those links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again, Andy, for coming on. Thanks for everyone else tuning in. If you guys have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. You can use the hashtag drbubspp. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe and give us your rating on iTunes. And uh, once again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you guys next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.